a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Welcome to Curiosityness, the podcast. I'm your host, Travis DeRose, and this is episode 56, and we're talking to Brian, who hosts the uh, Internet History Podcast, and he's also written a book called How the Internet Happened. Uh, super interesting, awesome, fun, gripping stuff. It, that sounded sarcastic, but it is actually really, truly awesome. I don't know why I said it like that. And... Uh, I had a great time listening and learning about all this stuff. By the way, links to, to his uh, podcast and his book are down in the show notes, so definitely check that stuff out if this at all interests you. Uh, he, you can dive deep into the stuff. He does interviews um, with everybody who was you know, related to the history of the internet, and we basically cover from 1995 to the 2007 era, kind of the like that starts with uh, the Netscape browser and all that kind of stuff and then go through the bubble and we talk about the future of the internet. But it's a really fun, interesting podcast that I think you're really going to like. So without further ado, here is Brian of the Internet History Podcast. Boom. We're on. How's it going, Brian? Good, Travis. How are you? Doing good, man. Thanks for being on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Dude, you're like the minute I found your stuff, I got sucked into it, dude. It's it's awesome. Yeah, it's helpful now that there's almost 200 episodes, so there's a lot to get sucked into if you are interested in the topics of like internet and tech history and things like that. Yeah, totally. Well, it's fun for me. I feel like because I I'm 25, so born in 93, I kind of got to grow up with it, but I was too young to really, you know, understand a lot of the stuff that was going on. Um, so, you know, I can kind of remember some of the stuff you'll, you'll talk about, but never really knowing it. So, uh, the stuff you share is is just so interesting. So there's a, there's a silly little trick about history is that if you live long enough, the stuff that you remember, the stuff that you're like, Oh, you don't remember this. I remember the first time I encountered someone in college that didn't know who Kurt Cobain and Nirvana was like, if you, the things that you remember firsthand, cause you were there and you lived through it, that becomes history. And then history is telling people that come up behind you. Yeah. It really happened like this. Oh, oh you're curious about the dot-com bubble. Here's what it felt like, you know? So like, that's just, may you live long enough for the stuff that you remember, like it was yesterday to, to be history. Yeah. Might happen. Who knows? <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, let's, I mean, let's just get into it. Or let's start with, you know, give me a, a description of who you are, because you have an interesting kind of bio. Uh, well, now I'm a professional podcaster, but it's a, I'll give you as brief as I can the weird, twisted way that I got there, which was I was a film major in uh, college in the 90s before the dot com and the internet stuff happened which is some of the stuff that i talk about is like it wasn't a thing to be an entrepreneur and all that stuff actually what everyone wanted to do was be quentin tarantino so there was a whole generation of us that went to film school because we fell in love with reservoir dogs and and um pulp fiction and i did that and i uh specifically wanted to write screenplays and things like that and one of the screenplays that i actually the one that i wrote for my thesis to get my degree was 
because it was in the summer of 98 and the dot-com bubble was happening. So it was titled Palo Alto and it was about a bunch of kids that go out to California to, to do a tech startup. And I didn't know anything about that stuff at the time. I just got a subscription to Wired and Industry Standard and things like that and read everything that I could about what was going on. Okay. Um, and because of that, I read in Wired about a company or a startup at Harvard that was doing college application essay editing. And I was like, well, I could do that. So I coded up a site and I did that um, for uh, basically, you know, to compete with them. Um, that's a very seasonal market. And so I quickly transitioned to writing resumes, which is a uh, all the time market, which actually the competitor I was copying did the same thing as well. And we were, uh, they were my main competitor for the better part of 15 years. Uh, but anyway, that company became ResumeWriters.com. Um, I, so it's in the job search space. And in 2003 and 2005, I did two other startups in the job search space. Um, I always like to say that we, the second startup uh, was a, as soon as I heard about social media, which at the time was Friendster, I knew it had to work for jobs. And so I always like to say that we got started uh, the same month that LinkedIn did, but obviously we did not become LinkedIn. Uh, but whatever, uh, you know, um, sold both of those startups for uh, IP and other things. And um, yeah, so I kicked around. <clears throat> I, I was doing blogging for a while and things like that. But basically, uh, resume writers for 20 years now has always made me a decent enough living and then always thrown up enough cash to fund whatever crazy ideas I come up with. And then uh, around the time my first uh, kid was going to be born, I thought, well, I, why don't I write a book about the history of the Internet? And again, uh, like I was saying, just the stuff that I remember. So, you know, mm -hmm. the Internet goes back to the late 60s and stuff like that. Other people have written books on that. But I thought, well, no one's told the story of how the Internet came into modern life, into everyday people's lives. I kind of lived through that. So uh, it came out last October. It's called How the Internet Happened. Um, and it roughly goes from 1995-ish to uh, the launch of the iPhone in 2007. Um, so everything's in there from Facebook to, um, you know, the iPhone to, but you know, dot com stuff, Napster, all that good stuff. Uh, all right. I'm, I'm really getting to the end of this. Um, <laughs> because I'm a web guy, I'm used to having an idea and being able to throw it up against the wall and see if it sticks and get like immediate feedback. And right. so writing a book is a very lonely endeavor. And I don't know, I just, I'm, I'm, you know, writing all these things and maybe people will be able to read it three or four years from now. And also I'm getting interviews and I'm recording them, um, from the original Netscape engineering team, the first official employee at, at, uh, Amazon, things like that. And I'm like, well, all that's going to happen. I just talked to the first Amazon employee for an hour and a half and, and maybe a sentence or two will end up in the book, but he talked to me for an hour and a half. So why don't I do something with this. So I started putting up the interviews as podcasts, uh, and that really took off, mm -hmm. um, so much so that I almost didn't follow through with the book, but that's how I accidentally got into podcasting. And now I do, um, the tech meme right home every single day. It's a daily tech news show. And we have a startup now, um, that's doing many ride homes. Uh, right now, the only other one is the primary ride home that does politics and things like that. But yeah, 
So roundabout way, I, my fourth startup now is a podcasting startup, and here we are. Sweet. Dude, I love it. I love how that came about and uh, how the podcast sort of complemented the book. It's genius because you have those interviews. So why not share yeah. those too? Because it's like you said, man, you got 200 episodes. You can read the book for you know an overview, but then to really dive down into everything or like learn about specific things, you got the, you got the people there in the interviews. Right. So, so the interviews are, are supplementary, but also what I did was um, as I'm writing the book in real time, like if you listen to some of those early episodes, they are like the early drafts of like chapters one, two, three or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was very helpful for crowdsourcing it, like using a podcast to crowdsource a book because uh, people would listen and be like, Brian, you got that wrong. Or they would listen and be like, you know who you need to talk to about this. So they'd help me land guests and things like that. So um, I do recommend uh, podcasting as a, as a way of writing a book out in the open. Um, um you know, you, you have to decide how much you're going to give away, but whatever. I wasn't really concerned about that, but it, it was very helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it seems, is anybody else, has anybody else done that that you know of? Cause it seems so. Uh, Walter Isaacson has played with it a little bit. Some people are playing with it or whatever. Uh-huh. As far as I know, I'm the only book that, uh, that I know of that did it this way and has actually come out. Um, but also it, you know, it's, it's useful to build an audience because yeah. You know, there's 70,000 people that listen to the to every new episode of the podcast. So, like, in theory, those are that was a ready made audience to buy the book when it finally came out, especially the people that were there from the very beginning that, you know, have been on a five year journey with me. Hopefully Mm -hmm. some percentage of them were like, all right, I want to see what actually resulted from this journey. Hell yeah, I'm sure. Man, I love that. You should write a book on how to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, um, I don't know. It's it's sort of like that, again, Web 2.0 sort of thing where it's like, um, just throw everything out there, live your life online or whatever, you know. Yep. Cool. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> Guess we'll find out. Um, so, I mean, let's just kind of get into the story of the internet. Uh, and you know, kind of what you cover. So what happened in 1995? Why did you start there? Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, this year is the year of all the anniversaries. The, the internet itself was born in 1969 and then the web itself, uh, invented by Tim Berners-Lee. Uh, it's debatable, but the, his project got started in 1989. So it's both the 50th and the 30th anniversaries this year. Okay. But when the, the internet again, got started in 69. And for a long, long time, it was the bastion of um, academics and people in the military and things like that. And and it wasn't really designed for everyday computer users. And mm-hmm. what the web was when the World Wide Web comes along is, again, it was kind of designed for academics because Tim Berners-Lee is at the at CERN at the nu- nuclear super collider project thingy in in Europe over there, and he thought of it as a way for researchers and academics to to share like research papers and things like that. But then, um, the analogy is is that if if you're old enough or, or you know enough to like original computing was like command line computing and it was very esoteric and not for normal users, but then. You had the graphical user interface, you had the Macintosh, and you had Windows. And so that is the thing, the the mouse and the point-and-click icons is what made computing uh, accessible to normal people, (laughs) normal normal folks. And so the web is is like that in the sense that um, 
you didn't have to know a protocol. You didn't have to, F, you know, FTP servers and things like that. All you had to do was get a web browser and point and click. And there were pictures and there, you know, what's, what's easier than a link? You click on this link and it sends you somewhere else and you can follow the trail of links like their, their breadcrumbs and things like that. So, um, the web is sort of the thing that allowed the internet to go mainstream, but specifically it was the first, uh, commercial web browser, which this is a little complicated. It was kind of Mosaic, which was created at the University of Illinois by Mark Andreessen. But then he left the University of Illinois and started Netscape, which you can think of as the first dot-com, the first internet company. Mm -hmm. And the Netscape Navigator browser was the browser that most people used to get their first taste of not only the web, but the internet in general. Okay. Um, and that happens in 94, 95. The Netscape, Netscape as a company goes public in 1995. And I call it in the book, the big bang of the internet era, because again, now we're used to college kids, which Mark Andreessen and his whole crew were at the time going out to Silicon Valley, creating a product or a bit of software and overnight becoming billionaires. But that, that Netscape IPO was the first time that that happened. Um, and like set the template for not only the technology world that we're used to today, but like, you know, even the economic and, and financial and stock market models that, that we're used to today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So just to jump back real quick, cause I think this might be something that would confuse people a little bit is, can you just explain the difference between the internet and the World Wide web? Yeah. So the internet is, it's, um, you know, it's it's the underlying protocols that know how to route one email from one address to another. It's the, you know, HTTP to like figure out how to get from one website to another. It's FTP sending files back and forth. It's things like IRC for, you know, the original chat. It's even news groups and things like that. All of these things existed and um, were created by academics um, for, for their own uses. What the, what the web is, is a graphical layer on top of that, essentially, um, which actually Mark Andreessen and the Netscape or the Mosaic crew, I should say, they were the ones that really pushed to make it a, a graphical thing. And so, as I say in the book, where if you were of, if you were of a certain predilection or a certain type of person, the web for, 25 years was a really interesting thing where you could, you know, find Star Trek news groups and things like that, or like share scientific papers and the, the anarchist cookbook and things like that. Uh -huh. Um, what the web just did was make it simple for, make it obvious for normal people. Like there's utility here. And also it's not just the, the web. It's also HTML was very, very simple. It's not a high, it's not, a, it's not even a programming language at all. It's a markup. It, like, so it, 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 the web was made it simple to create and good web browsers made it simple to consume. So it's sort of like the Netscape and web taking off were like a chicken and an egg thing. Like you couldn't have one without the other, both rode each other's success. And so the web you should just think of as like the thing on top of the internet that has always existed that made it dead simple, that made it easy for your mom to understand why it was useful to her. Okay. And like, and at this time it would, it had that 
graphical interface had kind of already existed on, you know, like a Mac or a PC, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. But, but right on, on a computer that's not connected to anything. Correct. Right. Yeah. So, um, while it, again, the ability, you know, a, a, a two-year-old can look at a screen and see a bunch of shiny icons and move this little mouse thing over and, and click on something and something happens mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, when I was growing up and we had DOS, you would look at a computer screen and there's a little blinking cursor. And unless you know what to type in, nothing's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But a graphical user interface is like there's these shiny things. I move this little pointer around and I click and something happens. The same, the exact same analogy happened with the web where the Internet used to require you to know what news groups to go to, to know how to dial into an FTP server or even Gopher and Waze and all these things that no longer exist anymore. You had to you had to know how to compute before you could compute. You had to know how what the Internet how to run the internet before you could use the internet. Mm-hmm. The, the web is the exact same analogy where, again, all you've got to do is dial in suddenly and you're presented with a bunch of links and, all right, I'll see where this goes. I'll see where this goes. Oh, what is this? Oh, what is this? Mm-hmm. And so it, as, as dumb as that might seem to be, it's a huge, huge cognitive leap that makes everything simple and makes it instantaneously useful to people that that had to happen before um it could it could be mainstreamed yeah i imagine it seemed fairly obvious to some people back then especially because it the transition had already happened through computers no it actually didn't because it was like mind-blowing again i you were born in 95 so i don't know I, when, when the iPhone came out and, and it was like, Oh my God, you can do that on a phone. Yeah. Like it was things that you could have done on a desktop for years and years and years, but wait, I can do this now on my phone. Right. It it blows people's minds. The same, the same thing happened where it's like, well, wait a minute. Um, as dumb as this is, man, I can get pictures from some, from someone else's computer. Or I can like I can see what someone else has written, as opposed to you don't understand. It's it's insane to think about that for 15 years the PC industry was a multi hundreds of billions of dollars a year industry, and every PC was an island in in and of itself. Yeah. The only thing the only thing that was useful to you was the software that you had on it, but it, like no one else's computer was useful to you. No other site was useful to you. like so. Those first, everyone's, and I've asked a lot of people about this on the Internet History Podcast, like your first experience of going online or your first experience going on the web. And, and to a person, they're like, yeah, I, I just, I felt like the whole universe had opened up and it was mind blowing. Yeah. And, and you know what, again, to come back to why history is important, the fact that you just asked me that question and I had to be like, no, 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 man, it was crazy. Yeah. It's like, that's the context that like is useful to preserve. And it's like, it wasn't obvious, even though you had graphics on a desktop, the fact that you got graphics from someone else's computer felt mind blowing. I see. It's hard to retroactively go back and put Mm -hmm. yourself in that when it's so commonplace today. I'll never understand. uh, I always like to use like rock and roll as an example, or even rap or something like the first time people heard Elvis Presley and saw him shake his hips. I, I can appreciate Elvis Presley's music, but 
I didn't know. I don't know what it was like in 1957 to see that. Why that was mind blowing, or the first time you you saw a, a, a rap music video on MTV and how different that felt than like the hair metal bands or things like that. Actually, I was around for that, but <laughs> yeah, it, the context is so important, and that's something that you lose. Like, why why a, a film or a movie or a a song was so revolutionary when you're just like, Oh, that's a good song. But you don't know why it felt insane if you weren't there when it, when it was revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Man. Okay. So, so let's, let's get to kind of the, the Netscape browser now. Um, so that's what really kind of opens the internet up for everybody. And then, so I guess, tell me a little bit about that. And then also the, the IPO for Netscape, cause that's, that went kind of crazy. Yeah. So, um, again, as I said, Netscape sort of rides the wave of the web going mainstream. Uh-huh. You can argue the web only became mainstream because of Netscape or whatever. But so, you know, um, like within six months of launching, they get 30 million downloads. And within two years, it's a hundred million. Now, again, Today, you're like, okay, uh, yeah. table stakes, if you're a successful new thing, you'll have 100 million users. You know, Facebook is approaching 3 billion users. But again, these numbers, one of the things you got to understand, think of, think of this from a business and, and financial perspective. You know, as late as the 90s, the most successful things in media were like friends was getting 30 million viewers at an episode and things like that. And, um, you just didn't have the, the, the term that everyone uses now is scale. The idea that you could release a product and you could reach 30, a hundred, a billion people. Like the only thing that reached a billion people before the nineties was like Coca-Cola, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so the idea, the thing that blew everyone's mind when the the web starts to take off is that all of a sudden there's a market where the addressable market is every human being potentially on the planet. Yeah. Now it's going to take, we, we still are not, there's a hundred percent of humans are, are still not on the internet. It's going to, but eventually everyone's going to be on there. There's nothing else that's like that or was like that before. Uh, and so when when Netscape is reaching those you know hundred million download th- things, the only other thing that had had that sort of success was was Windows and Microsoft. Um, and so everyone freaks out because they're like, well, clearly Netscape is going to be the next Microsoft. And some of that is is like everyone f- uh, fomoing the fact that they missed out on getting rich by buying Microsoft stock when it IPO'd and things like that. But um, also, you know, it, it it has borne out, you know. Google, Facebook, Apple, you know, billions and billions of users. Everyone is seeing that. And so what Netscape does is go is goes IPO really quickly. They're only 18 months old. They have no uh, profits to speak of. They have no meaningful revenue. And, and the tradition was is that you had to be profitable for at least two years before you IPO'd. But um, it was a combination of uh, the Netscape folks, which is Mark Andreessen and, and Jim Clark. Number one, they're like, this is a huge market. We need to get out there as fast as possible and grab as much of it as possible. And that's kind of always been the business model for the internet, like, you know, get big fast, um, mm-hmm. sort of a, a land grab mentality. But then also they were, uh, this is another thing that is hard to imagine right now, but 
the technology industry in 1995 was Microsoft and that was it. You cannot undersell how much they dominated all of technology, how they were the 800-pound gorilla, and there was no one else because they had slain all of their rivals. And so the Netscape folk knew that once they had proven that the web and the internet was going to be a thing, Microsoft was going to wake up to it, and they'd better uh, be, be ready for war, which is, in fact, what turned out. Anyway, long story short, they IPO in uh, the fall of 1995. And the other thing that no one was used to was having tech companies go public. Like the biggest uh, tech IPO before that was was Microsoft's IPO, and before that was Apple's IPO in like 1982 or whenever that was. Um, and so th- they go public, and again, no profits, no revenue, 18 months old, and all of a sudden it, it has a market cap of $2 billion. Again, you're expecting, you know, Uber just went public uh, 60 or $80 billion. But the fact that a company could go public overnight and be worth $2 billion blew people's minds. You know, in the book I described, the, the, the next day on the Wall Street Journal, the, the, the headlines in the Wall Street Journal are like, no one can believe that this happened. Yeah. So, it, 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 yeah, it was just, it was, I, it, it was, as I say, the big bang of, of the modern tech and, and financial era. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, obviously if it had that big of an IPO, people were, some people got it and could see the, you know, the potential of it, but what do you, and I mean, this might be hard cause maybe you were kind of in the tech space already, but like what, what was kind of the world's opinion of the internet? Was it that it would turn into what it is and be super important or that it was just kind of a vanity fun thing? Uh, I was a, actually a senior in high school when, when Netscape IPO'd, so I wasn't quite in the... Okay. Um, <clears throat> that's a weird thing. Have you ever seen that video um, from like the Today Show where they're like, what is internet or something? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. Well, there was a lot of that. And, and it's funny, doing the research in the book, again, I lived through this, but I, I had forgotten this. It's, it's funny to what degree and how late people are still like, what is this now? Like, mm-hmm. why do I need this? And, um, you know, Chris Dixon says famously that the 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 new thing, the next revolution is always dismissed as a toy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like because the early Internet, like you would go on it and what was it for? You didn't know you could chat with people. You could go to silly websites that did silly things and. Um, you know, the, the, it wasn't until Amazon and e-commerce came around that there was actually useful things to do. Oh, I can, I can buy things, I can buy books. And because this isn't a physical bookstore, it has access to every book in the world. Well, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And then, um, when eBay comes along, it's like, well, not only can I buy things, I can sell things. Well, that's interesting. Um, but yeah, it was a long, long time. And actually, I would argue not until like the mid 2000s that the Internet and the Web was truly useful to most people. And so, you know, if if you count the birth of the modern Internet era as 1995, it was a good 10 years for where people were, like I said before, throwing things against the wall and seeing what would stick. But no one really knew that like everyone's just like, this is a cool new thing. Um, what can we use it for? And no one knew, so they just tried everything. Yeah, there's a. Uh, I'm a pretty big Seinfeld fan, and there's a line where Jerry's like he missed out on something or not knowing about it, and he's and he just says to himself, "It's like, dang, I gotta get on that internet." 
know, my so. mom always says that the the what the internet revolution has really been about is that it's impossible not to know anything. <laughs> like, like if you think about it, like I, if I brought up my phone right now, I could figure out where my wife was within like you know thirty feet of her. Like, yeah. if you wanted to know. Uh, where Tom Petty was born, uh, Google it and, you know, in five seconds, like, and, and, and even in the larger sense of like, well, that is why, you know, internet of things is happening and self-driving cars is all about, they can do it because of GPS, like just everything is about like, it's impossible not to know anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was it like to like with the first versions of Netscape, what was it like to get on there and kind of jump around the web? Yeah, um, this is a, a, I feel like I'm old explaining to you. Um, (laughs) the funny thing was, is that, uh, and this, I do talk about this in the book, uh, the early search engines were garbage. And so they were things like Yahoo, Alta Vista. Uh, Yahoo was actually the best because it was a hand curated. Um, it wasn't even a search engine. It was hand curated, uh, directory. But a lot of the, from 95 to about 99, if you decided that you wanted to search for, you know, best windsurfing in California or something, like if you went to Alta Vista, you put it in, you might get the California state website or, you know, windsurfing in France or something. But like, so a lot of, when you got on, it was like, you had to like, it was very much like how you find out where the hot clubs are in, in New York city or something like you got to know people and you got to like, you know, have directories and things lead you to that. So like, I remember the things that I got into were like, you know, Howard Stern fan sites, a lot of Star Trek stuff. There was a weird, uh, early site called the, the, um, Hollywood stock exchange. I wonder if that's still around where like, you know, you would bet on like what, how movies would open in the weekends and stuff like that. And, oh. but yeah, we weren't like talking all the things that you think of now, we weren't talking to our friends. We weren't, it was all sort of like, well, I'm going to sit down and do this internet thing now. And then eventually someone might come up with a fan site of like Seinfeld quotes or something like that. And you would stumble across that, but it wasn't right now how the internet works for people functionally is it's like, I have a need and I'm going to get back a result. It wasn't that it was very much. I'm just going to see what's out there. You know what? In the same way, the analogy would be you go to, to Netflix now and they deliver you stuff to watch. Whereas, you know, back in the cable era, you just like turn on the TV and just flip through the channels until you found something that you're like, all right, I'll settle on this for a while. That's a, a lot of what uh, the the web was like in the mid to late nineties. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I wouldn't have even thought of that. Um, like the search engine ax- aspect of how important mm-hmm. that is. Yeah, because you 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 didn't sit down and be like, well, I'm going to sit down and go on the internet because I need to do X. Because you didn't, you wouldn't be able to find it. It might not even be there, and you you weren't even trained to have that expectation. It was more like. I'm just going to do the internet and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so let's jump to how did, so how did once Netscape kind of came about and Microsoft started to see the importance of it, how did they respond to it? Um, they just tried to kill them. Yeah. Um, so internet Explorer, 
was the the browser that they came up with uh, to compete with Netscape, and uh, they used again. This is I'll I'll, I'll light all, all over this. You can read the book if you want to hear it. But Microsoft is the biggest player. They're the biggest platform. The, the idea of uh, we talk about tech platforms right now that was born by Microsoft. Microsoft conceptualized that, and they used their platform, which was Windows, which at the time ninety percent of of the computers in the world ran. They leveraged that platform to kill Netscape by being like Netscape was charging forty dollars for a browser. It's software; you should pay for it and download it to use it. Microsoft was like, no. Our browser, Internet Explorer, we're going to give it away for free. And by the way, also, it'll come for free in every version of Windows. You know, you're starting to see some of this stuff creep up in, like, the antitrust issues with, that are people raising against Apple and things like that. Is it fair that the podcasting app is free on every version of iOS, right? So, like, it, how is that fair? Or, or, or Apple Music is free. Is that fair to Spotify? Whereas Spotify, people have to go look for it, and they have to pay for it. And then Spotify has to pay 30% to Apple. Though That question was the root of the whole antitrust uh, trial against Microsoft, uh, which, because, long story short, Microsoft was able to kill Netscape. Netscape um, is dead by 1998. They get bought by AOL. Um, and uh, so the whole point was, is that like, well, are you, is it fair that you can, Microsoft, or Bill Gates famously said, Microsoft never has to make a dime from uh, browsers uh-huh. because they had this cash cow in the background, which was the platform. So I guess the more direct analogy would be Spotify is pissed at Apple right now because well, Spotify's uh, Apple Music is is on every iPhone that is sold. Spotify isn't. Is that fair? And 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 Spotify has to pay uh, Apple thirty percent every time you subscribe. But beyond that, like, what if not only that, Apple Music was free, and and Spotify still cost ninety nine dollars or nine dollars and ninety nine cents a month? I guess we'll see that that might actually happen if if this um, new Apple streaming services, like if Apple's smart, they should make their streaming service free, the the video streaming service, the Apple Plus or whatever they're calling uh-huh. it. Um, so then, if they're smart, it's just like if you have an iPhone, guess what? You get our our, our movies that we're going to give you for free. But that's the exact antitrust question: is how is that fair? Yeah. Versus Netflix, you got to pay for. Spotify, you got to pay for. Well, that is the whole crux. And it, uh, the U.S. government sued um, Microsoft. Microsoft lost for a, ver- a variety of reasons. They did not get broken up, even though that was the original remedy. Um, but didn't matter. Netscape was dead anyway. And the rest is history. Damn, that's crazy. And I could see both sides of the argument, you know. If you if you have the platform and everything, then it makes sense. But it's also it's not really fair. The 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 argument on the other side is that oh, it's it's easier for consumers and things like that. Um, yeah, but that's I mean that's basic antitrust stuff. Is it's like if you're if you're disincentivizing other competitors that have to exist on the platform that you have. Uh, this goes back to the oil companies and the railroad companies, and then. Uh, a re- uh, an oil company would buy a railroad company so that they could ship their oil back to the East Coast cheaper, but then they would charge their competitors. Like it's it's basic antitrust stuff. Yeah, uh, everything old is new again, man. Because that's 
that 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 was the Microsoft Netscape stuff. That is the stuff that when when people are talking about antitrust right now with the big platforms, that's what they're talking. About. Yeah. Oof, man. Okay, so now are we sort of sort of like getting into the like dot com bubble era and stuff now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because everything came in the in the slipstream of the Netscape IPO. It was like a clarion call going off. There is a gold rush on. There's money to be made in Silicon Valley. Things like Yahoo, eBay, Amazon, <coughs> they all get founded within six months of the, the Netscape IPO. Wow. Um, and a lot of them go public within two years of the Netscape IPO. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a, but also, those are all names that you would recognize that they're mostly still around, but there are hundreds and thousands of companies. Yeah. Some of them that you might remember as jokes like pets.com mm-hmm. or uh, Webvan and things like that, that didn't survive, but it's like a Cambrian explosion of entrepreneurship and companies. And um, it is, the, again, talking about like things that we're used to today, venture capitalists throwing their money at every little thing in the world. And all you've got to do is say you're you're going to be a dot-com company, you're going to do business on the internet, and, and you could raise money, and you could IPO in six months. And so this dumb idea that you have, again, the scale is different. It, it, going public and um, having a market cap of $100 million seemed to be insane to people, uh, much less $100 billion as things go these days. Yeah. Uh, but all of that stuff, it's it was weird to me because, again, having lived through it, it, this seemed like this crazy long time. But the the what we think of the dot com bubble was actually maybe eighteen months. Oh, it was a very compressed period of time um, that basically ends in March of two thousand and really only gets started sometime in nineteen ninety eight. You know, so the companies are founded from like ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven. But the mad gold rush of companies being founded is a really limited period of time, but also it's, it's a stock market gold rush. Like, you know, when you see people speculating on things like Bitcoin now, and it's like, you know, Bitcoin can go up or down 20% in an hour, that sort of stuff was happening to these dot-com companies. I, I can't remember. I don't have the book open in front of me, but like if you had invested a thousand dollars, in Yahoo and eBay and maybe AOL, I can't remember. Like um, within 18 months, that thousand dollars could have turned into seventy-two thousand um, dollars. So you had these companies appreciating wildly, rapidly, and it's not like these were obscure companies. These were companies that were being talked about all the time. So you had this insane uh, speculative fever that everyone was involved in. Mm-hmm. You know. All my parents and their friends and whatever, everyone all of a sudden was, for, and sometimes for the very first time, as I point out in the book, like the idea that most middle class people have stock holdings and 401ks and things like that. Like, again, that gets started in this time period where I think the statistic from the book is, is that um, by the end of the 90s, 70 percent or something like that of the people that have an IRA for the first time had opened it within the last three years. Wow. And it was all to get involved in this like dot com mania and investing in stocks for the first time. <laughs> Crazy. Man. It's yeah, I didn't realize it was such a kind of a short time span. 
Yeah, it's super compressed. Yeah. So what really brought it all down? What how why did it pop? Uh gravity is the dumb simple answer which is it was too much too fast. Um uh, a slightly more sophisticated answer is is that because so much money was being thrown at anybody that had an idea for a company, eventually the bad will out and a lot of money was thrown at a lot of bad ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the most sophisticated answer is, is that it was just too soon in the sense that it, uh, the dot-com bubble bursts in March of 2000. I'm going to list a whole bunch of things that did not exist in March of 2000. Wi-Fi, um, uh, mobile data kind of existed, but we're talking 1G, not even 3G. Mm-hmm. Um, digital cameras had only come on the scene about 12 months earlier. Um, you know, and you think, oh, that's dumb, but like there were early social networking sites that their whole problem and why they failed was because they couldn't figure out a way to get people to upload photos because there was no way for people to take digital photos. Yes. And so like you couldn't even have a, a profile picture. Yeah. How can you have social networking if you can't even have a profile picture? Digital cameras. Um, there is no broadband as late as 2003. I think 2003 is the first time that broadband crosses 50% in North America. So you're still talking about in 2000 and all the way through the dot-com bubble, like people are dialing in and that horrible noise from the nineties. And like, you're getting 56 K speeds and things like that. Um, it, 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 you know, you, you could go, there's no, there's no touch. There's no, the idea of, of having, um, portable, uh, handheld computers exist, things like Palm haven't, but it, they're not really real. So the, the bottom line answer is that everyone had these good ideas, but the infrastructure just wasn't there yet. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the example that I use in the book is, People like you're used to getting food delivered to your house now. There, there were a lot of startups in the dot com era, like Webvan and um, Cosmo and things like that. That were like, you 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 want to order something, order it online, and we'll deliver it to you within six hours or something like that. But they couldn't make the economics work. It wasn't really ready. And by the way, like there was no mobile phones, so like how would you even like direct the the delivery drivers and things like that? Um, uh, a dumb thing, uh, MySpace, which, you know, MySpace eventually was like an, uh, early competitor to Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a startup in the dot-com era called myspace.com. And all it was, was you, it was a website that you signed on to, and then they would give you storage and you could put your files on your space on myspace.com. Right. Oh, so that's okay. cloud compute, right? Yeah. Um, that flamed out because like they couldn't make the server economics work and things like that. But cloud computing, people had all these ideas that were the right ideas, but for economic reasons, for structural reasons, for whatever reasons, it was just too soon. And that's why the dot-com burst happened. Okay. That makes total sense where people could see the potential of everything, but it just practically, it didn't work great yet. We needed the technology to get higher. Okay. Yeah, this is jumping ahead a bit, but you know, I I, I was I remember being told for years and years and years that 
handheld computing is the future. Get a Palm Pilot, get a BlackBerry, and 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 Blackberries were great, and but only for a certain amount of people. And there's a I, I talk about this in the book. There's a certain sense in all of tech that, and it's happening right now for things like VR. Uh, AI, things like that, where it's like, this is right around the corner. This is the next big thing. And it always is, always is, always is. And you're like, eventually you give up on it. But it always is a, a disappointment until the day that it's not. Yeah. And so, like, I can remember, like, the friggin' Newton was a handheld computing device in 1993. But it took another 15 years until the iPhone comes around. And it's like, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. This makes sense. This is the future that has been promised for 15 years. Every, the, the new thing is always the new thing that's just over the horizon until all of a sudden the horizon hits you in the head. <laughs> and there it is. You know? Yeah. So are we constantly in that sort of thing where we're just getting around? Like we have the, the vision of we could see what's possible, but it's just yeah. not working yet. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's the beautiful sort of agonizing tension of technology is that I can see all sorts of ways that let's use virtual reality as an example, how it, it is mind blowing and can be mind blowing and could transform the world. Well, why hasn't it taken off? Yeah. Well, you don't know. You don't know what the thing is when people talk about social media or, or even, uh, you know, I, I kept hearing about, uh, well, video on the web will be the thing. Well, it, it was, it was even, even going back again to the dot-com mirror until YouTube happened. What were the key things that made YouTube make video on the web happen? Uh, you know, I, I could go on a, a tangent about that, but the, the, the point I'm trying to make is I'm sure virtual reality is the right idea. It clearly is not the right idea now or yet. I don't know what the answer would be that will make it be the the revolution that it should be. If I did, I'd be a billionaire already. But the that's that's the wonderful thing about tech is like you can see what is obviously the next great idea, but that doesn't mean <laughs> that you'll be a billionaire. Yeah. Because you don't know a you don't know if it's the right time, and b you don't know what the thing is that kind of pushes it over that tipping point. Yeah, I totally see that where you can, it's so exciting to see what's possible, but it's just not, we're not ready yet for whatever reason. Um, So what's kind of the vibe after, you know, in 2001-ish that like, okay, we need to slow down here and like, or no. It was worse than that. It was worse than that. Everyone was absolutely convinced that it was a fad that was over. Oh. That the whole internet was a, was a thing that, um. Yeah, it might be useful for something, but yeah, I um, I remember this clearly. You know, people being out of work and um, hugely talented people. One for my second startup, I was able to hire off of Craigslist uh, a guy that went on to basically uh, create uh, streaming for Netflix. Like that's the level of talent that like people were just out of work and they'd be able to be like, yeah, I'll pay you $50 an hour to code up something. Um, uh, and, and Mark Andreessen, I think I quote him in the book is saying like, yeah, like everyone was shutting down, like all of these companies, like your time Warners, your Fords, your, everyone had these, uh, digital strategy and they had a technology group and they literally all shuttered them uh, in 2000, 2001, because they're like, well, thank God that was a huge waste of money. I'm glad that's over. And so it is, it's, it's funny 
like the 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 fact that all of the companies that we think of, with the exclusion of Amazon, mm-hmm. that are the big tech winners and platforms today, the Googles, the Facebooks, um, they they came in this era where no one was paying attention, where everyone thought it was a fad that was over. And there were some of us out there that were like, well, we don't think this is over, but it's not that we were, we were like, you know, indignant about it. We don't, we, we just, we were just like, well, it's still working for us. We're going to still do this. Google, that helped them. The fact that they were the only ones left standing when the dot-com bubble burst, they could hire the best talent. Microsoft had just been um, stung by the antitrust ruling. So, you know, Microsoft would have... If if not for that, they would have just bought up Amazon and and Google and everybody. Um, the fact that Facebook, you know, again, talk about a compressed period of time. You know, the dot com bubble bursting is like two thousand two thousand one, and Facebook had started in early two thousand four. So that's that's again what three years. Yeah. So the period of time where everyone is convinced that this is over, it's done. Uh, this is a fad, forget about it, to a company being founded that is considered to be, you know, one of the most successful companies in the world, even though it took a long time to get there, is a small, small window mm-hmm. where when when they're creating Facebook, people would have still laughed at them for doing that. Yeah. Man, interesting. And then so it's just kind of a slow buildup of of, you know, Facebook coming into play. Uh, Google's gets better at, at searching and everything like that. And people start to realize that, Hey, this stuff is actually working now. And it's, it's has potential. You have to give credit to Google for being the first ones to actually make money at scale on the internet. Like them proving that was hugely important. And again, I'm sorry to pimp the book, but read the book for the timeline because I'm going to gloss over this, but the timeline is important here. Um, you had all of these companies flame out and Mm -hmm. lose people a lot of money. And so as people are thinking, well, this internet thing is over all of a sudden in 2004, Google goes public. And I remember this as clear as day, people going, holy S because they're realizing (laughs) that Google is making a ton of money. Yeah. And so the fact that you, Google was the first one that was like, oh, we were wrong, or maybe they're an outlier. Maybe they're the only ones that figured out how to make this internet thing work. Uh-huh. Um, but the other thing that you got to keep in mind is that the people that survived, uh, again, I, I can remember clear as day that Amazon was a $5 stock, and they've never split since. So there was a time period in like 2004, 2005, you could have bought a share of Amazon for 5 bucks and I don't know what it is now, but it's in the thousands of dollars. More than that, yeah. But people never stopped using the internet. And so if you look at if you go back and look at Amazon's financials, even though they went down to being a five dollar stock, their revenue never dropped. Mm-hmm. Um even companies that didn't make it to this point, like Yahoo, Yahoo survived because people never stopped searching. Mm-hmm. And um, so the, the underlying fundamentals of what the internet revolution was, even though all of these, they always say that the leaders have the air on their back, mm-hmm. um, even though all these other pioneers got killed in the dot-com bubble bursting, that didn't mean that the internet itself 
was not a revolution. And so then when Wi-Fi, broadband, mobile internet happens, then all of a sudden you have you have an addressable market, like I was talking about, that was bigger, that was everything that everyone was dreaming about, but they didn't have. Yeah. So that by the time, um, you know, Facebook can get traction and reach 100 million users, like that's the sort of thing. AOL at its prime, at the time that AOL was so big that it could buy Time Warner and at the time the greatest merger of all time, at their height, they had 25 million users. Wow. And and if you if you have an app that reaches 100 million users now, that's pretty good. But it's mm-hmm. not gonna like you know, <laughs> it's not gonna like uh, put headlines in the paper or anything like that. Um, so right, all of a sudden, while no one was looking because everyone thought that it was a fad that was over, all of a sudden by 2004 to 2008, people kind of look around and be like, oh this thing was real and it's happening and it's really happening now and people are making money on it. Yeah. So, uh, I guess what is web 2.0 and when do we kind of get there? Uh, I just had someone on the internet history podcast that was very influential in this period. Um, the, uh, Chris Messina who invented the hashtag, um, oh. actually was hugely influential on that by starting the early bar camps and, um, being, in, uh, involved in Firefox and things like that. And so we kind of talked about that, about like, what, what was it again, was kind of one of those things that you had to be there. It was, first of all, sort of the sense that like, this isn't over mm-hmm. where all of a sudden you started to hear about people doing cool things and new startups that were happening. Um, dumb things now like Flickr, which was like, Hey, post your photos on a website and tag them with keywords and share them with anyone that you want, which sounds completely obvious now. But at the time I was like, wow, that's a really good idea or uh, delicious, which was, um, you find something cool on the internet, share the link with people that follow you like yep. totally obvious things. But like, so again, it was this sort of just like Renaissance of like, Oh, there's good ideas and, and, and things happening again. But essentially, the 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 thing that all of Web 2.0 had was, if Web 1.0 was, I'm going to put up a website and you're going to consume it. I'm going to put up a website and then I'm going to sell you things. I'm going to put up a website and you're going to read things. Web 2.0 was just basically a bunch of tangentially related ideas where it's like, it's two ways. You're going to consume and produce. You might go to Flickr to see other people's photos, but you're going to put up your own photos. Okay. Um, you might go to Wikipedia to get an answer to your question, but also you can edit Wikipedia. You can create a a Wikipedia entry. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't know to a younger person why that seems so revolutionary, but the idea that it was back and forth. Listen, the idea of blogging where you would share what happened to you was a whole thing. Go back and read the articles where like there's New Yorker pieces and things like this. Like, what does this mean that um, what happened to me last night, I'm going to share with everyone, including strangers around the world that don't, will never know me. What does this mean for society? Like that was the whole thing that just all of a sudden, like uh, an explosion just sort of happened all at once. Yeah. Oof, man, that's so fun to hear about. So then I guess I think this is probably what most people are thinking. Is there going to, is there a web 3.0? Is that even a thing? Yeah, I, but I, I, it's too, you could argue that it, it, it has already happened. 
Okay. And, you know, is Web 3.0 the things like the Ubers and Airbnbs, which is a that's hard. I wouldn't most people wouldn't say that because that's such a narrow use case. That's sort of like the gig economy thing. But yeah. to what degree are things like um, Snapchat or TikTok or Twitch or things like that, like some sort of like evolution of social and mobile and things like that? I would argue that I don't, it hasn't happened yet because there has to be some sort of greater paradigm shift. Like what I just described was web 1.0 was I put something up there, you consume it or you buy it. And then web 2.0 is like, it's back and forth or whatever. So is there some other greater thing where there's like beyond almost like the client server model where it's like, it's all the way ubiquitous or it's more absorbing or more, I don't know, but, uh, right. It it probably is something like VR or AR, Mm -hmm. you know, is web 3.0, even though it's not ubiquitous yet, is it things like Pokemon go, you know, where it's like you're out in the world and it's, it is interactive and it is social and it is all these things together. Um, yeah, I don't know if, uh, there's no way that I could write my second book yet because there hasn't been enough time to figure out what those things are yet, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Man. Well, Brian, this is awesome. I love hearing this stuff. Such a fun, the story is so interesting and then there's so much to it. And so I'm glad you're kind of, you have kind of the overview, but then also the deep dive stuff that you share on your podcast and everything. Um, did you, do you have like a, uh, I don't know, maybe like a favorite uh, guest or or anything like that that you've or experience that you've had on doing this whole podcast and book. Uh, mm-hmm. No, that would be unfair to a lot of people. Uh, look, if you want to check out the well, so the book is how the Internet happened. Yeah. If you want to learn about all this stuff, read the book. If you want to check out the podcast, because the podcast is most most useful for these deep dives. I just recently did Chris Messina, the inventor of the hashtag. And so like, that's something that didn't make it into the book. And so it's, it's more contemporary. Um, it had a very inter- interesting con- conversation with him. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I, I do, <laughs> all I'm doing is documenting all this stuff every single day. So I do the, the tech meme ride home. It's a, a, it's a daily tech news podcast so that if you, Want to know how what happened in tech for the last 20 years? Read the book, get the Internet History Podcast. If you want to know what happened today in the world of tech, um, it's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. comes out every day at 5 o'clock, and it is literally, you know, Johnny Ive quit Apple. That's what we talked about today. So mm-hmm. if, you're right. interested, if you're interested in parsing tech stuff, tech history as it's happening, uh, check that out. Sweet. Cool. Well, Brian, I'll have links to all that stuff down uh, in the show notes. People can check all that stuff out. But uh, other than that, I think we're, we're good. That was awesome. Thanks, man. Thank you, Travis. So there you have it. That was Brian from the Internet History Podcast, author of How the Internet Happened. Make sure you check out both his podcast and his book. Links are in the show notes. Because that stuff is interesting. If this at all sparked your curiosityness, oh gosh, I said curiosityness. I meant curiosity uh, about the history of the internet. Definitely check out all those resources. You can find really fun, interesting stories and people and everything with, with everything he offers. Um, so thank you, Brian, for being on. Really appreciate you sharing all that stuff. Uh, as always, if you like this show, I really appreciate you sharing it. 
posting it on social media. Give me a shout out on social. Let me know what you thought of the episode. And if you have any suggestions for new guests or anything like that, uh, Instagram's the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, I'm on there as Curiosityness Podcast. Uh, also on Facebook and Twitter. You can send me an email too. Uh, I'll respond to that. Uh, Travis at curiositiness.com. And uh, that's about it. Just, yeah, appreciate you sharing with your friends and family. It really helps the show. And uh, appreciate you listening to the end and, and being here and being a loyal listener. So that's it. Thank you. Have a good day.